God speaks to us in his word in Matthew 5, 10 through 16. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Kim. Kim is awesome. Kim is a deacon in our church, and she helps lead all of our deacons. Uh, we have seven of them, and uh, just, uh, just grateful for Kim. She does a lot around here that you don't see. I'm gonna keep talking, Kim. I know you hate this, but uh, I think it would be, I think it would, uh, be helpful and uh, it would just show some appreciation for the work that all of our deacons do to just say thank you to her and thank you to all the deacons by just a quick round of applause because they do a lot. Do we have that slide? Do we have the internship slide? We do? Do we? Can we put it up there? Look at that. I'm gonna do this really quick. College students, not college students, post-college students, whatever. If you don't want to, if you are not into wasting time and even wasting your life, if you wanna be trained to uh, love the church, serve the church, whether you're called to ministry vocationally or not, if you wanna grow in discipleship and theology, if you wanna be a part of this here, and help us do the work of ministry with people like him, um, I wanna invite you to go to frontlineinternship.com. This, this program has changed many lives in this church now, uh, but also in all of our frontline congregations, the people that have gone off and learned about Jesus while they were here and gone off and served Jesus um, just in the business world or whatever. Write it down, take a picture, we don't have the fancy QR code. We ain't, that, we ain't that bougie around here. But do the frontlineinternship.com. Go there and look into it. Applications for residency and applications for the internship are open now for next year, okay? So at least go there and check it out. Amen? Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 5 today. My name is Ben, and really glad that you're here. Uh, any guests in the room, I say it every time, every Sunday. Like, it is, especially on a dreary a little cool, like cold enough and dreary enough to want to stay in bed <laughs> on a day like today, which is a day off for you, if you're not, especially if you're not a church person. Um, it means a lot that you would show up here today and be a part of this. Uh, we would love to talk with you. We've got a gift for you. Of course, like Ivy said, any questions you have about the church or about Jesus or Christianity or whatever, please don't hesitate to ask. We're in Matthew chapter 5. We're finishing um, a, a sort of mini-series. This is the fourth week on uh, what we at Frontline Church, what we believe God has called us to. In a lot of places you'll hear 
called a vision statement, a mission statement, but we just said, man, at the first of the year, it's just good for us to kind of uh, re-up our engagement to understand like, okay, who are we? What do we feel like God has called us to? And the thing about vision statements are, if you have any clue about church, if you grew up in the church, you've been to a hundred churches like I have, or worked in churches or whatever, you'll know that a vision statement can kind of be thrown in the mix of like, okay, this is in the how to plant a church kit. <laughs> this is like, if you have a church, you gotta have a vision statement. Nobody really knows why. Nobody even really knows what it is, but we know that it can be really vanilla so long as it doesn't say anything that's abrupt or disrupts our comfort, but it just sounds cool-ish, then we're good. Frontline Church's vision statement is multiply gospel communities that love God, love people, and push back darkness. We talked about multiplying gospel communities. It's like, check, that makes sense. That fits into the bucket of like, okay, we probably, that's something we should probably do as a church. Um, love God, sounds like a good idea, you know, if we're gonna be in the church. <laughs> sounds like, duh, we should love God, love people. Yeah, we probably shouldn't be hateful, right? But then we get to this one today, push back darkness. And now all of a sudden that's like, wait a minute, what? What do you mean push back darkness, pastor? Now you're confronted, your comfort and, and the way that we, you know, our idea about can we come to church and just be there and be a part of a kind of a cultural club, a social club and not really ever be asked to do anything, not really, really ever be uncomfortable. You get through all of the statement and then you get to push back darkness and there, there's a major confrontation of, of comfort. And we are today through Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount, we are all of us are gonna have our idolatry to comfort challenged. So today is one of those sermons. I don't know who you are. I know some of you. I don't know what your life is like, but I'm going to give you the facts. I'm gonna give you the truth of what Jesus said that changed history. This Sermon on the Mount changed history. I'm gonna give you the facts. You are going to have to decide what you do with it, but it's not gonna change whether or not it's true. The words that he said are profound, they're powerful, they're abrupt, they're confrontational, and they are true. Jesus has called his disciples, he has done ministry throughout Galilee, he's cast out demons, he's risen dead people from the grave, he's healed the sick, he's proclaimed the kingdom, Jesus has been pushing back darkness. He has now had a crowd gather around him. He's walking, of course, anybody that walked into this room and you had heard and you had seen, like, man, they, that person healed a sick person. I saw somebody get raised up out of the grave because of that person. Don't you think that we would all be like, let me just follow this person around a little bit. Jesus had this massive crowd around him. He's doing all this ministry. He retreats from the crowd. He goes up, he takes his 12, his disciples, and he sits on the mountain away from the crowd and he looks them in the eye. His followers that he chose, that's the church, that's you. Today, I think that Jesus wants to look us in the eye and say, I need you to hear me. What I'm about to tell you, these words are true. Another gospel, when he starts this sermon, he says, um, if any man hears these words of mine and does not do them, he is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the rains came, the house blew down. But if any man hears these words of mine and does them, 
He is a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rains come and the house stands. Let's be wise. Let's be wise today. Verse one of chapter five. Seeing the crowds, he went up the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. These are powerful, powerful one-liners that would have flown in the face of the cultural idea of what God should do and what he should provide for us. Everybody around him, every single body, especially those that were Jews, those were, that were hyper-religious, those that would have gone to the temple like you are today that are sat in church, they would have thought, they would have believed that when the Messiah comes, he is coming to give us power among the nations. Jerusalem, Israel thought that, that he's gonna overthrow the Roman government that has us captive now, and he's gonna give Israel power. We're gonna be powerful. We're gonna have a loud voice. We're gonna carry a, a sword. We're gonna approach other nations. They're gonna bow down before us because God himself will be our God. That's what they thought. Well, God himself is in the flesh now, and he says things like, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. The poor in spirit? Come on now. The meek? Come on now. What do you mean the meek, Jesus? Blessed are the meek? Blessed are the weak ones? Blessed are the ones who come to you with fragility. What do you mean? You are here to give me the thing that I think I deserve. You're here, Jesus, to set up my kingdom, my throne. What do you mean, blessed are the meek? What do you mean they will inherit the earth? This would have blown their minds. And it did, it changed history. These are all one-liners, they're zingers. Jesus is one after another telling them, no, you thought this way, I'm telling you it's this way because that's what the kingdom of God is. It's a paradox. To be high is to be low, to be first is to be last. One-liners, and now Jesus moves on from one-liners and he takes up all this space. Now pay attention to this because he's used one line for each of these things. Now Jesus is gonna talk about one particular subject for a long time and his tone is gonna change. What he says to them, the way he says it, he, he needs to look them in the eyes, he needs them to hear what exactly it means to be a Christian and that's what this is. This is Jesus, this is God's manifesto. Here's what it means to be a Christian and it starts with this. Persecution is a symptom of following Christ. It's not a thing that may happen if you're a Christ follower. Hear me, it's not up for debate whether or not this will happen to you. If you follow Christ, if 
you follow him. Not if you follow the church, not if you follow the top worship songs on CCLI, not if you, not if you follow Christian culture, not if you know the part, look the part, act the part, is are you in the fold? If you are in the fold, persecution will be a symptom of that, a symptom. Blessed, Jesus says, are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And now he says directly to us, he's just said, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn. This is like he's speaking outside of first part, he's not talking directly, and now he says directly to us, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's directed to his disciples. You, if you follow me, if you do, you will be persecuted and it will also be to your blessing. He's driving the hardest point home. He wants them to hear it clearly. The mark of the Christian means that you're persecuted and because of that, you are blessed in Jesus. Well, if that's true, which it is, I don't, there might be some argument here on some level, but you would be arguing with the very word of God. I mean, this is what God says to us. So if that's true, then we need to know what does it mean to be persecuted? What are the attributes of being persecuted according to the word of God? It means this, being reviled being hated. This is not like, see, this language keeps us from going, you know what, I'm persecuted, man. I'm persecuted. I've been trying for this one video game for a long time, and I just, nobody, my, mom, my parents won't give it to me. <laughs> Persecution. I can't believe I don't get the car of my dreams. I can't believe this one job, or even going so far as to say, not even silly stuff, but just like, I can't believe that this person doesn't want to date me or whatever it is. I'm persecuted. It's like, no, no, no. Here are the attributes of persecution. If you follow Christ, it's like this. It's being reviled. It's being hated. Um, gossiped and slandered about. Uttering all kinds of evil falsely against you. It's being lied about. A buddy of mine who I've known for years and years, uh, we used to do ministry together, and uh, I caught up with him this past week, and I asked him about another guy that I used to do ministry with, and uh, who I've not heard from or heard about in a long time. And, um, and I said, how's this person doing? He goes, you know, man, it's kind of weird. That person's walked away from the Lord, and they just texted me out of the blue and said um, how much they hated me and how much they hated wh how, what I'd said to them and all these things. They were, and he said it was crazy. They were making up stuff, and it was really painful. The irony is that the guy, the friend that got texted is one of the best friends of all time. So patient and loyal. It's exactly what uh, the enemy would want to attack him on. And I told him this. I was like, man, I'm getting ready for this sermon, and I'm just telling you, like, I've experienced that. And I think the more you follow Jesus, it's just inevitable. It's inevitable. It is a symptom of following Christ. Following Christ means we pursue him and saying no to idols, it means that we separate ourselves from the world. 
Persecuted for what? For my sake? No, for righteousness' sake. For on the account of Christ. Not for our personal gain so that we look the part and act the part, but on the account of him. Uh, Luke, Luke 6 says this. This is, this is really straightforward. Woe to you. Now, I want to stop right there because you have the God of the universe who was, who was never created, who spoke light. Light. He spoke it. Elohim. When he speaks, we listen. And when he says, woe to you, we should pay attention. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Proverbs 27, six, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. An enemy just says nice things. But a friend wants you to be guarded and guided. Second Timothy three, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. First Peter two, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak, so that when, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. When they speak of you as evildoers. And then something incredible and ridiculous comes out of the mouth of Jesus. Absolutely ridiculous. He says this in verse six, in verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and be glad. Have you lost your mind? Anybody else feel that way? It's like, okay, this is it. This is finally the moment where we, we see, if you're a disciple, it's like this man that we follow, we thought he may be insane, and now we know for sure he is. Rejoice and be glad when you are persecuted. James tells us to count it all joy when we encounter various trials. The call of the Christian is not just simply to endure persecution, but according to Jesus, it's to rejoice and be glad because it says something about who you are. It says something about who you belong to. It says something about your identity and your eternity. Rejoice and be glad. That's different than having some sort of martyr syndrome where you just walk around looking for persecution because primarily you want people to know that you're being persecuted. So you make up persecution. Jesus said this about the Pharisees who did that. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Jesus says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. A true witness of Christ in a world that is addicted to being comfortable is that when our comfort is stripped away, we have the thing that we thought comfort promised, which is joy. That's a witness. That's a true witness. All of, all of the work of the whole world to like make money and be an influencer or whatever, or be influenced, whatever it is, all of that work to find the right, perfect relationship, man or woman, all of that confusion, that work is, is supposed to, it's promised us a thing, the work has, it's promised us joy and happiness, but it never comes. Or it comes for like a single moment, 
and then it's gone, and then you have to chase something else. And what the Bible is saying here is that the thing that the whole world is after, the idolatry of comfort, to get joy when you actually get it is when all of your comfort is stripped away. That's a witness. Rejoice and be glad. Uh, I read a couple stories this week in preparation that struck a serious nerve with me. So I'm, I'm stealing these from, from Kent Hughes' um, commentary that I use on the Sermon on the Mount. Joy and persecution is this. A Scottish pastor was years and years and years ago. He was imprisoned for preaching uh, the gospel. He, he had been preaching it for over almost nine years, I think he said. And he was in prison finally for preaching the gospel. And uh, here's what he said. I never knew by my nine years of preaching so much of Christ's love as he taught me in Aberdeen by six months of imprisonment. Christ's cross is such a burden only as sails are to a ship or wings to a bird. He said, I preached Christ's love for nine years. I never knew it as much as when I was in prison for six months for preaching Christ's love. Another man, um, more recent, a Romanian pastor was in prison uh, for preaching the gospel. He was locked in solitary confinement. They were trying to break his mind and his will. Um, then he was starved. They were trying to starve him to death. And then that wasn't enough, so they would pull him in and torture him. They would have chunks of flesh uh, cut from his body, just chunks of flesh that would, he would go back with missing chunks of flesh. And he would frequently be so overcome with the joy of Christ that he'd go back to his small cell and he would be dancing before God. When he, this is crazy. It's already crazy, but this is even crazier. When he was finally released, um, he fasted the first day of him being released because he was mourning the loss of that kind of intense joy of God. It, you could say maybe he's insane. I don't know what you could say. I, but that doesn't go very far. Your argument against it doesn't go very far. It's like what reason would he have to act a fool? David, when they brought the ark back, when they retrieved, which it was the ark in the Old Testament, was the, that was the presence of God. When he brought it back, he starts dancing around the ark. His wife gets mad, the people, he's the king. Everybody's getting mad, here he is dancing. And he starts saying things like, this is undignified, but I will be even more undignified than I am now to dance before the Lord. I'm talking to a room today in a place of the world. I'm talking to myself in a place where we don't have joy. We don't have it. We're bored to death in the American church and maybe in this church. We think about only ourselves. We think about what God did or didn't give us. We have not been persecuted. We don't, we have not been harassed. It's because we don't share the gospel. It's because we don't pray for, it's because we don't even know any unbelievers, a lot of us. Who wants joy? 
Who's tired of like chasing your tail at the, and perpetuating this kind of like bored approach at God? There is joy, according to Philippians, peace that passes human comprehension, understanding. But if you follow Christ, that comes from persecution. We have to be careful though, because it's important to understand that these people did not nor should not have enjoyed or pursued persecution. That's silly. It's actually sadistic. There's such a thing as martyr syndrome among Christians that we talked about briefly a little while ago, but it's that look on your face, it's that life that you portray that's like, woe is me. I'm suffering for God all the time, and you should know that. <laughs> I will tell you, I will post it, I want you to know just how bad it is for me. Well, that's not, that's actually counteractive to what's being said here. If you're truly suffering for God, if you're truly being persecuted, then there should be some joy. <laughs> Oliver Wendell Holmes was a poet in the 1800s, really famous, and he said, I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen I knew had not acted and looked so much like undertakers. <laughs> Amen. It's not that they go for persecution, but it's what they got from persecution. It's what it produces in us. And we might not ever be thrown in jail, but to follow Jesus means that we will be persecuted. That word persecuted literally means to pursue or to chase. It's, it's the, today's term, today's day, it would be the same thing as being harassed for your faith. Um, but joy comes. I, I've actually been those things. I've been harassed at times and, and felt some of that. And, uh, you know, in the minute, in the, the moment, it's like none of that's any fun. You kind of freak out and you're like, oh, what is going on here? But what has happened in me is there's been things that God has used in those, in those moments to produce perseverance in me. And it's also another opportunity, maybe the most opportunity for God in my life to have proven this thing that I've said that I know, but now that I know that I know, which is that God is faithful. He doesn't leave or forsake. And even though there's harassment, even though there's whatever, he stays the same. He doesn't leave us and it's gonna be okay. The flip side of this is a church who is persecuted for their sake. The Bible says persecuted for righteousness sake on my account, but you can also try and be persecuted for your sake. What I mean is this, Kent Hughes says it best. Sadly, Christians are often persecuted not for their Christianity, but for the lack of it. Sometimes they are rejected simply because they have unpleasing personalities. You can laugh. They are rude, insensitive, thoughtless, or piously obnoxious. Some are rejected because they are discerned as proud and judgmental. Others are disliked because they are lazy and irresponsible. And competence mixed with piety is sure to bring rejection. Let's not be those. Let's be these. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And Jesus moves on for that from that into now explaining what this looks like in the practice of our life. He doesn't say, he doesn't make suggestions. This is not up for debate. He's saying definitive statements. And the next thing he says is this, is that you are salt. You are salt. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, 
How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the salt of the earth. If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, that is what you are now. You have been converted to that. You have been changed to that. You've got a whole new molecular structure. You are salt. Well, what does that mean? What is salt? Salt is two things. Salt is flavor, it's seasoning, and it's also a preservative. Salt and flavor meaning this. I've got plenty, plenty of friends in the room, and um, myself included, we love to cook. <laughs> and if I could ask anybody that loves to cook in the room, you don't have to shout it, don't have to raise your hand, but it's almost worth revival to talk about. There's one thing that you need that you cannot live without if you're going to cook anything, and that is salt. You need salt. You need it. And there's also one thing that you can tell right away that there's not enough of if you go to a restaurant. Amen? They're missing salt. It's like, man, they just would have put this one thing. I'll go buy them some salt if I can go back to the kitchen and put it in the soup before they bring it out here. Uh, but it's also a preservative. So salt flavors. That's what Jesus is very particular here. He knows exactly what he's saying. You are the flavor. You are the seasoning. You are the ones that are put in the world to flavor the earth with the presence and the power and the goodness of God. You're also a preservative, meaning this, you are to preserve salt. Back in the day, um, they would use salt uh, before refrigerators or freezers or whatever. They would use salt to preserve meat and uh, even embalm. I mean, that was how they did a lot of embalming back in the day was salt. It just preserves. Jesus says, you are preservative. I have now given you that title, meaning you preserve the kingdom of God. You preserve the church. He's chosen to bring his kingdom through people. You preserve things like the Imago Dei, man and woman in God's image. You preserve the sacredness of the kingdom, the design of true life, and also the earth itself, which is a whole other conversation. But for those of us that pay attention, we should think about like, what does it mean for my eschatology or for my theology of the end times? If God is telling us here that we are to preserve the earth, then that must mean that the earth itself will be preserved. That means that we have work to do. The church is called to add, not take away. Salt adds no flavor if it's only left on the shelf. Let's talk about that for a minute. Leave salt on the shelf, there's nothing worse. And you go somewhere, I'm just imagining this. I've not actually done this, but I'm just imagining this. It's like to go into a kitchen to get served bland food that has no seasoning, and then you see a whole box of sea salt sitting on the shelf. Like, why don't you just take the box down, please? Come on now. Put a, you just a little bit goes a long way. Don't serve me a steak with no salt on it. Have you lost your mind? Salt does no good on the shelf. You are the salt of the earth. You are no good on the shelf. I'm telling you this, what you're pulled to is isolation. What you're pulled to is just to do your thing. Well, that doesn't work at all. All the flavor is gone. All the seasoning. Church is called to add, not take away. Being a church that pushes back darkness means that we have to be uh, consistently facing the darkness around us. You can't push anything unless you're not uh, in front of it. Nothing gets pushed from an isolated room. The church is not called to fill up our calendar with a bunch of Christians-only meetings. 
That's not what this is. It's not what you're called to. It's not what we're gonna do here for sure. We try our best. We don't forsake the gathering. You are, that's commanded. Do not forsake the gathering of believers. Show up to your community group. Show up to your commitment. Show up to church. Do not, not a suggestion, a command. We're called to pray. That's a command. We're called to, to rally. We're called to worship. We're called to sit under the teaching of the word, which is what we're doing now. We're called to the table, which is what we'll do in a minute. We're called to those things. But it is, it is uh, anti-Matthew 5 for us to think that we're called only to those things. The church is not just the church when we meet together. It's actually just as much the church when we scatter out of here. It's the church gathered and the church scattered. You are the salt of the earth. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this way, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It's then the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. Secondly, you are light. You are light. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. You are the light of the world. What's interesting is that Jesus has said in John 8, he says, I am the light of the world, about himself. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of, your life, of, of life. What do you mean, Jesus? Who's the light? Is it you or is it me? And the answer is, is it's both. There is no light except for the true light, which is what John also says about Jesus. He is the true light. Here he puts it on us. We must be in Christ to shine Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? Spurgeon <laughs> wrote a book. Charles Spurgeon was an uh, old pastor, really famous pastor, preacher back in the day. Anybody that likes theology in the room, which there might be two or three of us, I don't know, but um, will know about Charles Spurgeon and um, was a part of revivals, many of them, and preached and trained pastors. And one of the things that he said um, about being in Christ to shine Christ was this. He, he had requirements for men wanting to uh, be in ministry. And one of the requirements he said was, they must first be a Christian. It's like, yeah, you must first, if you wanna preach about Jesus, you must first know him. I read that and I laughed. I was like, that's actually really true. You must first know him. You have to be in Christ to shine Christ. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. People of God, not hidden, not invisible, but impossible to miss. If you've ever traveled abroad or anywhere, I guess sporadically in America, a city that's positioned on the top of a hill that you see it when you're driving up on it cannot be missed. Not because of how much we yell at people, but because of our works. Look at verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The gospel is news to be shared. This is not like a get out of jail free card to just not ever face your fear and share the gospel. But this is for most of us to say, let's not just do that. Your good works is what leads people to give glory to God. It's evangelistic according to 1 Peter 2. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and then Glorify God on the day of visitation. And then 1 Peter 3 talks about wives with unbelieving husbands. It's kind of interesting, but here's what it says. They, the unbelieving husband may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives 
when they see your respectful and pure conduct. That's powerful. Again, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means this. It means that we have to live in such a way to be salt and to be light, to let our works be known, to work hard so that it's impossible for you to miss persecution. It will come. And when it does, don't go looking for it. Don't be silly. But when it does, rejoice. You're following Jesus, and that's proof. When's the last time you faced persecution because of your faithfulness to Christ? Who are the unchurched or non-Christian people in your life? Would they be able to tell that you've surrendered your life to the Prince of Peace? My prayer for our church is that we face the reality of this, and we perk up, and we come to the table, and we repent, and we say, yeah, I wanna change. I wanna turn around. I wanna live, I wanna give my life away. I wanna say no to boredom and Christianity. I wanna fight the good fight. I wanna fight it. That's my hope for us. Let's stand together. If you're serving the table, go ahead and come down.